This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Paul Muldoon, the poetry editor of the New Yorker magazine. And on this program, we invite poets to choose a poem from the New Yorker archive to read and talk about. And then we ask them to read a poem of their own that's been published in the magazine. Now, my guest today is Jennifer Michael Hecht, a poet and an historian. Her many books include The End of the Soul, and that's a book about the group of 19th century French anthropologists who founded the Society of Mutual Autopsy with the aim of dissecting one another to prove that the soul does not exist. Quite a topic, Jennifer. Yeah, it sure was. I enjoyed it very much. I actually found those archives. Nobody knew where they were, and I, I, I found them myself in France. We murder to dissect, according to the poet William Wordsworth? Well, yes, uh, we certainly have at times. They waited until they died and dissected afterwards rather than, rather than scooping out the brains before they were ready. Well, that was thoughtful. Let me ask you, do you ever think of yourself or perceive yourself as an historian while you're writing poems or indeed um, a poet as you're writing history? Some historical ideas come into the poetry, but I would say more the poetry goes into the history and sometimes I have to bat it out like a bad dog. (laughs) So the poem that you've uh, chosen to read today is by Lucy Brock Broido and it's a poem called Noctuary. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about uh, what caught your eye in this poem, Noctuary. There's a lot of things that are great about this poem. One thing is the title itself. It's a nighttime diary, a diary of night events. So it gives us this sort of hint that we're about to hear some personal things and internal dialogue, which we then do, in fact, hear. And there are all sorts of little hidden things which, if you pay attention, start to pop out about what's what's going on in this poem. I think one of the most interesting is the first line of the poem is Silk Spool of the Recluse. And later on, she talks about a violin spider. And those are synonyms. There's a recluse spider that's also called a violin spider because it has what looks like a little violin on its back. Well, let's have a listen to the poem Noctuary by Lucy Brock Broido. 
silk spool of the recluse as she confects her final mythomania. If it is written down, you can't rescind it. Spoon and pottage bowl, you are starving. Come closer now. What if I were gone and the wind still reeks of hyacinth? What then? Who will I be? A gaudy arrangement of nuclei, an apple-sized gray circle on the tunic of a Jew, preventing more bad biological accidents from breeding in. I have not bred in. Each child still has one lantern inside lit. May the mother not blow her children out. She says her hair is thinning, thin. The flower bed is black, sumptuous in emptiness. Blue-footed mushrooms line the walkway to my door. I would as soon die as serve them in a salad to the man I love. We lie down in the shape of a gondola. Venice is gorgeous cold. Three December. Unspeakable anxiety about locked-in syndrome, about a fourth world. I cannot presume to say. The violin spider, she has six good eyes, arranged in threes. The rims of wounds have wounds as well. Sphinx, small print, you are inscrutable. On the roads, blue thistles, barely visible by night. And by these, you may yet find your way home. Noctuary by Lucy Brock Broido, published in the April 15th, 2013 issue of The New Yorker and then appearing in the book Stay Illusion. You know, I was struck as you read it there. It's really quite a dense poem and there's a lot happening in it. I notice actually, as one sometimes does when one rereads a poem, uh, the line, each child still has one lantern inside lit. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the, the charge of those words, quite extraordinary, stillborn child. The fact that the word lit, L-I-T, occurs within the word still. A lot going on. Mm. And also that still really reminds you that, that there's a chance that each child had a lot more lanterns lit, but some of them get blown out. But she's saying that, you know, if, you, if you're careful, one might last. And that's picked up beautifully, of course, in this resolving image of the thistles. Mm-hmm. We can see the, the blue, the purplish blue glow of the thistle yeah. there in this wonderful image at the end. Yeah. I suppose it's a poem that's influenced somewhat by, by the imagist movement in poetry, the early 20th century. Yeah, it certainly is very descriptive. Those blue thistles uh, reflect off the blue-footed mushrooms that line the walkway to my door. And there again, you know, there's this hidden suggestion, I would as soon die as serve them in a salad to the man I love. Those are mushrooms that are uh, poisonous if you eat them raw. But the thing is, to me, she's saying she wouldn't, but but once you say something, you mean both sides of it. There's an ambivalence there. It's at least crossed her mind to serve them in a salad to the man she loves. That's right. Now, we don't usually think of a mushroom as having a foot, never mind a blue foot. Right. Though, of course, there's, there are some quite famous mushrooms, and I'm thinking of those that uh, came from within the cellar, as it were, of Sylvia Plath, mm. where she describes them as having a foot in the door. Uh-huh. Plath, I think, perhaps hanging over this a little bit too? Yeah, that would make sense, um, certainly. There's a sort of family resemblance in a lot of the lines.
Nocturne, what would you, uh, what if you were uh, going in to sell this poem, the movie rights of this poem hmm. to a Hollywood producer, what would you want to say to her about it? You know, this is a very, very much an internal world, and it's a, a peek into something very private and secret. And that's part of why it seems obscure in ways, but in other ways, it's it's a, just a normal interior dialogue. These things that we think of, the memory of someone telling us that their hair is thinning. If you just read it once and don't think about it, it's just a, a something you might think of. But when you think a little bit about it, it's somebody telling you that they're that they're really declining, and and that um, you know, especially a woman losing her hair, that's a much older experience, and the unspeakable anxiety about locked-in syndrome and then that wonderful little clause in the same sentence about a fourth world. You know, we don't know exactly what she's talking about, but we are led into another world of the the experience of being a very observant person stuck being human. And uh, that means suffering. And, and this poem tells you about that in a way that is interesting. You know, that leads us quite neatly to your own poem, if I, if I may uh, mm. say so. Uh, in October of 2011, uh, The New Yorker published uh, your poem, Gender Bender, and uh, I hope you'll read that for us now. But before you do that, maybe you'd uh, like to say something about it, anything you think might be useful for our listeners to know before they enter the territory of the poem. Is there a signpost that you'd want to give us? It's actually a pretty coherent poem. It it has a point and a message, though it tells it in a way that makes it clear that it's much more complicated. But um, a lot of my poems do have sort of arguments to them, um, statements, ideas, metaphysics or psychology that they're trying to get into. And this one, this one does. It makes a case. Let me ask you about that, if I may. Do you find that you know what the argument or the thesis is before you go into the poem? No. Or is it, as you're suggesting, that you discover through the process of writing the poem what it is setting out to do? Yeah. If I don't learn something new from it, it's not a good poem. (laughs) I pull it up and throw it out. I I want the poem to to shock me a little bit, to to say something I'm not even sure I'm on board with some of the time. And and then I have to live with it for a while and and see what I think – yeah, I want to hear from my subconscious and and uh, from whatever other voices and words come together. And certainly I have little ideas that will show up in a poem, but I don't sit down to write one. Yes, I mean, there is that theory that uh, one's heard expressed so many times that we should write about what we know. And I think we understand what that means. And yet in some very profound sense, as you're suggesting, it's only when we write about what we don't know that truly interesting things happen. Yeah, and there's, it's very hard to get to new ideas other than writing or, or deciding that you want to think about something deeply and staying with it a long time. And, and where else, if not poetry, to, to find something new? Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent, 
Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. At eBay, you'll always get that feel of real because your fashion purchase will be backed by authenticity guarantee. Whether it's a knit bag, a must-have watch, dreamy jewelry, or fire sneakers and fresh streetwear, every step will feel authentic, every flex will feel real. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal with eBay authenticity guarantee. Visit ebay.com for terms. Well, let's uh, embark here on gender bender. Gender bender. Evolution settles for a while on various stable balances. One is that some of the girls like cute boys and some like ugly older men and sometimes women. The difference between them is the ones who like older men were felt up by their fathers or uncles or older brothers. Or if he didn't touch you, still you lived in his cauldron of curses and urges, which could be just as worse. They grow already old, angry and wise. They get rich, get mean, get theirs. The untouched, uncursed others are happy never needing to do much and never do much more than good. They envy their mean, rich, talented, drunk sisters. Good girls drink milk and make milk and know they've missed out and know they're better off. They might dance and design, but won't rip out lungs for a flag. Bad ones write books and slash red paint on canvas. They've raged to vent. They've fault lines and will rip a toga off a Caesar and stab a goat for the ether. It's as simple as that. Either deep in the dark of your history, someone showed you that you could be used as a cash machine, as a popcorn popper, as a rocket launch, as a coin slot jackpot spunker, or he didn't, and you grew up unused and clueless. Either you got a clue and spiked lunch, or you got zilch but no punch. And you never knew. It's exactly not anyone's fault. If it happened and you don't like older men, that's just because you like them so much you won't let yourself have one. If you did, people would see. Then they would know what happened a long time ago with you and that original him whose eyes you've been avoiding for decades gone forgotten. That's why you date men smaller than you, or not at all. Or maybe you've turned into a man. It isn't anyone's fault. It's just human, and it is what happens, or doesn't happen. That's that. Any questions? If you see a girl dressed to say, no one tells me what to do, you know someone once told her what to do. Gender Bender by Jennifer Michael Hecht. One of the things I love about that poem is the the anger in it. It's not very far from the surface. In fact, I think it comes out uh, once or twice, not problematically, to the surface. I mean, anger is one of those emotions that has its place with all others in mm-hmm. the poem, it seems to me. 
but uh, I love the um, that that component and the sense of uh, in the midst of it all this very matter of fact, casual style, the tone of the poem, mm. so chatty, mm-hmm. so unveiling, taking us in. I mean that line about uh, if it happened, and you don't like older men that's just because you like them so much you won't let yourself have one (laughs) as if we're talking about ice cream or Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps a chocolate tell us a little bit more about uh, what how you perceive the tone of a poem like that what goes into making the tone of a poem like gender bender you know when i sit down to write the only thing i ask of myself is honesty that's it and i could sit there for a while and not be able to think of anything true but you know, it's it's really hard to not let the poem take you on its own trip uh, that is into a kind of preformed idea. And in this one, when I'm, I read it, I see myself saying, no, you know, hold back. What can you really mean here? And it's interesting. I do say an awful lot here. And there's almost a feeling of betraying the confidence of someone who has put on a hard shell. The truth is, I believe this to be true to a certain degree, and I believe it to be true also of men. That is, if I see a man wearing a, a black leather jacket with studs and, and a big facial hair and whatever else, um, you know, I, I do think to myself, this person was mistreated when they were a child. He was run over by a motorbike at some stage. Some, some, some reason they decided that they were going to be tough. And somebody who's really treated with a great deal of kindness in childhood is not likely to pick up that pose. Of course, there are other reasons that explain human behavior. But I do believe that to some degree, a person is telling you when they're a certain kind of tough or a certain kind of arrogant, that at some point they were denied kindness. So to go back to that very first idea that we started with uh, your study of the uh the people who are involved in in dissection, would you say that at some level we're actually fairly basic little organisms Mm. in terms of our psychological makeup? I mean, we tend to think of ourselves as being quite complex. And on the the other hand... Think of ourselves as complex and everyone else is kind of simple. (laughs) (laughs) I do think that there are um, some broad understandings of what makes people behave and and there are these proportions where you know certain events lead to certain outcomes but any given person you never know thank you so much for talking to us today uh, jennifer thanks for having me i really enjoyed it so that's jennifer michael hecht and her poem gender bender as well as lucy brock broido's poem noctuary uh, may be found on newyorker.com i'm paul muldoon poetry editor off the New Yorker. Until next time, goodbye. Jennifer Michael Hecht's latest book of poetry, Who Said, came out in the fall of 2013, as did Lucy Brock Broido's latest collection, Stay Illusion. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store. You can hear more poems from the magazine read by the authors in the digital edition, and you can now hear them online at newyorker.com. The theme music is The Pentacree Ferryman from the album The Highlander's Farewell by Alistair Fraser and Natalie Haas from Colburny Records. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is recorded, edited, and mixed by Owen Agnew for Curtis Fox Productions and NewYorker.com with help from Elizabeth Dennison.
I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> Thank you.